His word. There we go. At the same time as you turn to page 7 and page 8, you might be thinking, have mercy. Um, and I, I was, we'll say two things real quick. One, I think you know by now, at least since I've been here, uh, we, we, we do give attention to how much we're reading and doing in the service, especially for our younger disciples and maybe just ourselves, that just our patience isn't as, and, our, and our focus isn't where it should be. But at times, um, it is really good for us to read big sections of Scripture, and this story is one of those. Um, but to give ourselves to that, to focus, to work towards paying attention when, um, when we want to look at our phone, when we want to zone out. And I, and I just, both, both sides of that, uh, empathize with perhaps some in here who may be like me, who I look at this and I might be like, oh, man, am I going to fall asleep through this reading? At the same time, I want to challenge and encourage us to move into that and to focus because it's God's word and it's worthy of our attention and our focus. And I think as you hear this story, whether you've heard it before and especially if you've never heard it before, um, you will be drawn in to see the wonders and the beauties of God uh, in this story with David and Abigail. Uh, Briefly before I read this by way of scripture introduction, David is in the wilderness we look last week where David is hiding from Saul. He's, he's being hunted. And, um, and, and in this section, 24, 25, and 26, uh, David is being tested. And when we think about David being tested, this is not necessarily um, where we kind of just pull from the text and say, okay, is this how God tests us? There's specific things going on here. As God has already anointed David as king, and now as he is sent out into the wilderness— as we'll see, there are things that God is going to be doing with David, but that he does with us too, which is he's going to be refining David. That as a king, he's, the wilderness is not this place where he exercises his might and exercises his sort of um, ability to prove himself as king. This is where actually he proves himself as king by growing independence of God. And so last week, what Jamie went through, when, when, Saul, or when David was in the cave and had a chance to kill Saul, it was, a, it was a, a picture of him restraining, taking the kingdom by himself as opposed to waiting for the Lord to give it to him. Here, though, is a different test. He is marching to murder a fellow named Nabal and his men. And we see in this case that where the previous story, he was restraining. He needs to be restrained here. He needs intervention. And he gets that by this beautiful woman named Abigail. So with that, let's give our attention and focus to the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, where we are told in one verse that Samuel has died. Beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died... And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house in Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you this. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and all I have for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. I think they strapped on their swords. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night. All the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master, Nabal, and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. And she did not tell her husband Nabal this. And as she rode on the donkey uh, and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not, my Lord, regard the worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But if but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the, Lord for, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition." 
And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. He was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of, the, of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in 1 Samuel. And we pray now that as we have read it, as we expound on it, that you by your spirit would teach us, that you would come and be our teacher that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. That you would do this for your own glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got some double, double holstered here. Um, let me start with a question to you. Uh, what is it, what is it uh, that, that, would, that call, would cause you to just stop you in your tracks with whatever it is that you would be doing at that given moment. And it could be something good, but perhaps it's something bad. And something would possibly be able to interfere, intervene in, with you and cause you to stop uh, doing what you're doing and head in a different direction. But you know, just in general, have you ever experienced, and, and maybe you have, where you're just going about your day and, and something shows up and it just causes you to just stop? Maybe you're in the middle of the street and you don't even realize it. Um, some of you know we got a puppy for Christmas, and thank you for continuing to pray for us for that. We've waited uh, and put, pushed that off as long as we could till now, and we're glad that we have a dog, and her name is Noelle, and she's a four-month-old Chesapeake Retriever, which is the Maryland State dog. So any, any questions as to whether or not we're all in here, we're in. And it's been a, I grew up with dogs, but it's been a while since I've, I've had them. And so a lot of the, the, the instincts are there, but some things I forgot that are coming back, um, such as with puppies, they really don't listen to anything that you tell them. And you, you forget that you have to train these dogs. And so we spend lots of time working on our training words and, and offering, you know, <clears throat> bribes, which in the form of snacks, to do the things we want them to do. And it's really for the dog's safety. Um, but at no time, really even still, does uh, Noel do a really good job of listening, uh, especially to me. I'm supposed to be the master. Um, and I can't, you know, she's learning her name. But there is something, though, that breaks through everything, no matter what she's doing, no matter where she is in the house, that, that for, for obvious reasons, as I tell you, causes her to stop whatever it is she is doing and come to us. And actually, our girls kind of figured this out. It's, it's the treat can. All our, these little treats come in this can. If you just shake it, it makes like this jingle, and she knows exactly what that is. And she could be obviously in the house, but she could be in the backyard, out of sight. But you just do this, and she comes running. She can, it, it, it is what causes her to stop whatever she is doing. And, and why that is, is obviously, as we know about puppies and dogs in general, Food is king, right? And for her, treats are food and king. And, it, and what is more beautiful 
than anything else, especially anything else that she is focused on and doing in this given moment. And it causes her to stop. And it causes her to change what she's doing and come to us. Now, you might have something like that. As we come to this text, though, what I, what I, why, why I share that story with you is David's in need of the same thing. David is in need of something to come in and cause him to stop what he is doing, right, and change his direction, change his behavior. And, and, and the one thing that, 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 we, that I want you to see in this text that causes this is the same thing that causes this for you and me. And it's not a tin of treats, thank the Lord. It's beauty. It's beauty in the form of grace. And that grace comes to David in the, in, in the person of Abigail in this text where she speaks to David the beautiful words of the Lord to him and also reminds him of who he is and why he is who he is, that he is not out here in this wilderness uh, and somehow um, proving his worth, but he is being reminded that all of this is grace. God has chosen me from a sheep field when I didn't even know who he was. and He's called me in and he's anointed me king over his people. That's what this time is for. That's the beauty and the grace that will cause David to stop, as we'll see in this text that I want you to see. But it's also the beauty and grace that, we, that causes us to stop as well. Whether that's repentance in the, in the form of turning and going towards the Lord or being reminded of his goodness to us. And where do we need that reminding more than any other place in our lives? It's in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness. It's in the places where we're hurting it's in the places where we are wondering if God has left us. It's in the places where we're not really sure what to do next. Not only is the hymn that we are singing for the month timely, but I believe this passage is timely as well. To look at those things, I want us to see, and it's not printed on your bulletin, the purpose of the wilderness, the first thing we'll see. I want us to see... God's faithfulness to Israel in this text, and then I want us to see God's faithfulness to us so that we might see his beauty in Christ, which is his grace towards us, that would cause us to stop and turn and move towards him and be reminded of him and his goodness towards us as his people, no matter what our circumstances are telling us. So let's start with that first one, the purpose of the wilderness in this second test, uh, David and his men, as we read, about 600 now, he's gathered. They have been in the wilderness, uh, essentially acting as a band of justice riders who are keeping the peace in an otherwise unpeaceful place. This wilderness is like uh, another place that we read about in the New Testament, where a man is walking uh, from Jerusalem, and he gets uh, attacked by thieves and robbers, and he's left there for dead until a Samaritan comes along and helps him, and we know this as the Good Samaritan. This is that same place, and so David and his men are actually keeping the peace out here um, and, and, and protecting people, and especially they're protecting uh, men that belong to this other man named Nabal, who is, as we read, he's a rich man, and his wife is named Abigail, as we read. And so David, um, as he's doing this, understands that, that, he, that it's sheep shearing time, which I don't know if that means anything to you, didn't mean anything to me. That means feast time. It's a big time in, in the life of the agrarian people at this point. And so he sends 10 men to say, hey, go to Nabal. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he'd be happy to have us. We're out here doing some work for him. I'm sure he knows who I am. Um, but, but, you know, and just be polite about it and let's just ask him if he has anything he can give us uh, you know, that we can come to his feast and enjoy that. Um, but Nabal doesn't exactly fall over himself with this request, does he? In fact, Nabal acts like he doesn't even know who David is. And we read that in verse 10. He says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? In doing this, Nabal basically calls David and his men outlaws and thieves themselves. Now, this is where Nabal, which is close to the Hebrew word for fool, what the word means, it really begins to show who he is. It really begins to show kind of his, his true colors. And, and as it were, fools will be fools, and so, such as Nabal. 
He doesn't see who David is, and he, he insults him in the process. Okay, fine. That's not the point of this text. Remember, it's about David in the wilderness and how God is testing him. And so what the point of the text is, is how will David respond? What wisdom will he implore over the matter, right? This is the test, and this is where the story takes a turn. As we get to 13, and David said to his men, every man, every man strap on his sword. We heard it three times. And so we went from uh, offer peace, we saw that three times as he sent his men to Nabal, to now put on your sword three times. This is David's response to somebody, a fool, who doesn't show David the respect that he thinks he deserves. And so he puts, he gathers these men in order to go and to murder him, to take vengeance into his own hands. And the gravity of this, we understand later in the text, is that it would have huge complications for not just Israel, but himself as king. And we can imagine, right, the the normal uh, things that come with vengeance in the form of a massacre to, to his own people on his way to becoming king, that there would be this trail of blood. Would you want to trust somebody? Um, who just took out Nabal and all of his men. Do you remember that? What would he do to you if you didn't look at him correctly? What would he do to you if you happened to, if you happened to find out that you were making remarks about him, right? These are the things that would begin to happen if David were to go and carry this out. But not just that, right? There's the internal struggle, like the mental struggle of a king whose conscience is bound because he knows he's, he's, he's gone against the sixth commandment here. In trying to lead a people. And with that conscience being bound, as it were, right, that burden of conscience would cause David to not rule well, which would ultimately affect who? Israel, God's people. Now, these are just a few things that we note in this text as to why David needs to stop and use wisdom here in this situation, because without that, there are catastrophic uh, repercussions for his actions. But these reasons I suggest to you are secondary to what is the most important of them all. Right? The reason under all of these reasons why it's, that, that something is wrong, and that is all of these things point to David not trusting God. Don't miss that. See, for David to respond this way to Nabal would be evidence that David does not trust the Lord to care for him, to protect him, to avenge those who are after God's anointed as he has promised to do. This is the test or the refining process of the wilderness for David. It is the purpose of the wilderness for David. And the question we're left with as he straps on his sword is, will David trust the Lord to fight his battles as he did with Goliath? Or will David unfaithfully act out with acts of vengeance that contradict, and this is the most important part as it relates to David as his anointed, that contradict who the Lord is, who Yahweh is, and his character and his steadfast love that we have been reading about. That's what's in view as David and his men head towards Nabal. See, the wilderness, friends, the purpose of the wilderness, it is a place where faithfulness is forged. We see this all throughout the scripture. It is a time not to prove your worth to God, but to remember how God has already deemed you worthy as his people and thus live out of dependence in him. When we hear about the wilderness, especially if we've grown up around the church, we might think of what? The Exodus generation. And what was that? This was the definitive act of redemption in the Old Testament. If Jesus and his cross and resurrection are the ultimate act of redemption in the New Testament, which it is, God rescuing his people out of Egypt is the definitive act of redemption in the Old Testament. It is the one thing over and over that Israel is called to remember, remember, remember. And what happened? God rescued his people out of the hands of of, of the Egyptians, out of the largest army in that time and place, and and took him as his people, and they went into the wilderness. That's the wilderness generation. And for 40 years, they wandered, 
And there's a lot more going on than we're going to note at this point in time. But what was the purpose of that wilderness expedition for them? Was it because God didn't know where he was going and couldn't quite, didn't have like their Google GPS at this point and couldn't get to the promised land? I mean, you know, they're just going in circles. No, of course he knows where he's going. The purpose of the wilderness, though, was to refine Israel. It was to get Egypt out of their hearts and to get God into them that they might begin to trust and depend on him. And so the dialogue that we remember and recall from this story, right, of, of Israel, and we would be the same, right? We are out in the desert. Why have you brought us here? They would cry out. Where will we get food? Did you bring us out here to die? And what does God say? I'll provide. I'll rain down manna from the sky. Okay? But what about water? Will you let our children die of thirst? No. I'll provide it. I'll have my servant Moses strike a rock at my command, and you'll have water more than you could ever drink. Right? The wilderness is the refining place where God forces his people into dependence on him. Force is a strong word. He gets, he gets what's unrest in our hearts, right? Egypt for, for, for the wilderness generation, all that is not him so that he might enter in and call his people to who and what they're supposed to be. That is what is going on for David at this point in time. That's where he is. And this is God's providence. That in that wilderness, this soon-to-be king would, would not prove his might, but would prove what? His dependence. His dependence. And because that's what the wilderness is, y'all, the wilderness is hard. But I would actually go a step further. This is why you and I hate the wilderness. And we need to be honest about that. We don't want this. Because the wilderness is the place, right? It is the place where you are stripped of your comforts. For David, it's literally in the woods. You are stripped of your comforts, right? Of your control. You're stripped of your power, of your status, of anything that in, time, in a time of need or crisis you would fall back on. And see, that's the point. That you would be stripped of those things and learn to 100% depend on the Lord himself. God is trying to get you to stop falling back on those things in these times where we experience the wilderness, figuratively speaking, that you might fall into him. Sometimes the wilderness looks like losing a job. Sometimes it looks like not being able to have children. Sometimes it looks like addiction and temptation that seems to just constantly, constantly overrun you. Sometimes it looks like changing schools or, I don't know, uprooting your family all the way to the East Coast. But Jesus goes with you. He goes with you. Sometimes it looks like losing a dear friend or parent. Something we, were all, we are all feeling this morning for sure. And see, the difficult thing about the wilderness is that in the face of it, it can seem like God is punishing you. That he has left you. But in reality, there's no sweeter mercy and love than the wilderness. Because it is how God draws you closer to himself where the very safety and security and control and peace and rest that you are looking for in a thousand different places in this world can be found. As Eugene Peterson puts it, the wilderness is not an experimental station in which you test yourself to find out how strong and resilient you are. 
It is where you discover the strength of God and God's faithful ways of working in and through your life. Well, whether you find yourself there this morning or not, this is where David is. As he runs for his life, for those who are trying to kill him, but also in this scene where he is provoked to go and murder. And it is a time where God is wanting to see in him, who are you going to trust? Where, where and how are you going to uh, show dependence on me, especially in this case, to avenge your enemies? And as we leave this first point, which I know is rather long, he's not stopping. He is mounted with 400 of his men with swords, and they are headed to Nabal. And unless something intervenes in the path of David, this will not end well. And so what happens? And this gets to my second point, God's faithfulness to Israel. This is the first point, the purpose of the wilderness. And the purpose of the wilderness is always to refine God's people. It's to create a dependence upon him so that they might know who he is and therefore go be a blessing to the nations. But second, we see in this God's faithfulness to Israel as he provides one to intervene. As David and his men are strapping on their swords, Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about what David and his men are about to do, and she quickly makes what amounts to a small feast that's the most impressive thing in the text, by the way. We are reminded why she is described as discerning and beautiful. Back in verse 3, and it is intended to be a sharp contrast to her husband who is harsh and badly behaved. But Abigail prepares all this food that she offers as a gift to David and his men. And this is what Nabal should have done in the beginning. Abigail rides out and finds David, who in verses 21 to 22 is, is ranting about the evil that has been done to him and how he will not let one of Nabal's men survive. Verse 23, Abigail sees David and goes to him, and her first response, her first response is to fall on the ground before him on her face. It is an act of humility and reverence to David. Visualize this, which is actually an act of humility and reverence to God himself. And all she is asking for is for a chance to speak. And she is intervening for her husband, the fool at this point. And her first words to David are, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And what she proceeds to say is this, David, you are trusting, you are not trusting the Lord as God's anointed, and this act will have dire consequences for you and for Israel. In other words, you, a king, are acting like a fool. Stop. Stop. Remember who God has called you to be. Remember whose you are in the Lord. And so we get this just incredible presentation of God's grace and love in verses 25 to 31. And I want to slow down just a bit and walk through that because it's, it's incredible. Beginning in verse 35, Let not my Lord regard, this is Abigail to David, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as is his name, so is he. And then 26, Now my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What is she saying? Abigail is not just intervening here at this point. She's prophesying. She's preaching. She's telling David that God has actually restrained him from this act of vengeance and from attempting to save himself. And this phrase, right, this word will come up four different times in this entire story. It's another reminder of God's mercy, though, to do this, that there's this providential restraint that God is acting on behalf of his people. Yes, he's doing it for David, but we have to remember what God does for David, so he does for Israel. So that when we get to the New Testament, what God does for Jesus, so he does for what? His church. All right? 
This is a mercy to do this on behalf of Israel. But she is also holding the mirror to David a bit, showing him that none of this involves the Lord. This is all him. He is no longer thinking about God. He's no longer thinking about his calling. He's only thinking about himself, saving with your own hand. For sure, Abigail is putting her own life in her hand as well as she attempts to say these things to David. Verse 27, and now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord, which is Yahweh here, will certainly make my Lord, David, there's a lot of lords, a sure house. Because David, my Lord, is fighting the battles of Yahweh and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Evil here is the absence of trusting in the Lord. Abigail is now calling David back to who he is as God's anointed, but more so as one loved by God. In other words, she is saying, David, nothing you are doing right now speaks of God's love and promise for you, nor your love and faithfulness to him. David, he has made you prince over Israel. And you want to go chasing after my husband, the fool? (laughs) What a gift to David and Israel, as I've said, and Abigail at this moment. But she's not done. Verse 29 is the kill shot. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord, David, shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This phrase, bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord of your God, is remarkable because it is a beautiful way to say, the Lord has you, even in the wilderness. The Lord has you, and that means nothing can happen to you. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can happen outside of God's providence that would take you away from him. No enemy, not even death. David, you are like a bundle of sticks, as one commentator writes, that is tied tightly into a greater bundle that will never be lost. David, you are like a feather that binds feathers to an arrow that assures its target is hit. You are the Lord's. He has you. And if you forget, and this is the the cleverness, the beauty again of her, 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 her words. If you forget, let me remind you what he will do to your enemies. He will what? He will sling them out, which perhaps for you, you don't need this reminding. But what is she doing? She's reminding him of David and Goliath. What did he do for you? He fought for you. It's an incredible testimony. Abigail finishes in verse 30, And when the Lord Yahweh has done to my Lord David according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord David shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord David working salvation for himself. And when the Lord Yahweh has dealt with my Lord David, then remember your servant Abigail. Here again, she's recalling the blood guilt that would be on David's hands. And it's here that we see that Abigail is not only intervening on David's behalf, but she is, she is God's faithfulness to Israel at this time. By keeping David from doing something that would affect his kingship over them. And here's here's the feather in David's cap. Perhaps maybe one of our first takeaways is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. David listens. David listens, and he repents. At the beginning of verse 32, we have his response saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. 
Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Notice here, and this is not a, a, a sermon about forgiveness and repentance. Notice how he names what it is that he needs to repent of here. How powerful that is. Here's what I was going to. Saul really, rarely ever does this. David sees it because the Lord reveals it to him. He's willing to be honest about it. But he listens. Hertzberg says this in his commentary, through Abigail, the Lord saves David from a danger different from that in the cave with Saul, but nonetheless great. It consists in the possibility that David may take matters into his own hand and thus make himself master of his fate instead of letting it be guided by the Lord. And he sees it. And he listens. And he stops. And he turns. And he forgives. This is God's faithfulness to David, but it's, it's his faithfulness to Israel. To intervene, to stop David from going the way of fools and be who God has already declared him to be, his anointed. And this moves us into the final point, God's faithfulness to us. The story concludes with Nabal dying in verse 38 and in 39, David is reminded that it is the Lord who avenges his anointed and the one who has kept back or restrained, as we said again, his servant from wrongdoing. And as we, we, we kind of come to the end of the story, it seems like everything is going to be wrapped up in a, in a nice present with a good bow on top. Or is it? No. <laughs> no. It, it doesn't. As Jamie said last week, David has more Saul in him than he might like to admit. While David is a man after God's own heart in the ways that he listens and repents, he continues to leave this trail that points us to wondering, is David okay? Is he going to make it? I mean, if we just review from what we've looked at, David doesn't carry out his vengeance on Nabal, but it's clear he would have if Abigail had not intervened. See, David is still learning dependence on the Lord, and that's okay. We're all learning. But even last week, David doesn't kill Saul, but we, he cuts off a corner of his robe and feels guilty about that because it was wrong to do that. What's the point? In both of these tests, David doesn't necessarily fail, but he's not exactly passing with confidence either, is he? And then at the end of this chapter, and this is one of these sections that we just don't talk about as a church, and I think it comes home to roost by the time your kids go to college and start reading the Bible and, and talking about it. But we don't talk about David's wives. We don't talk about polygamy. We don't talk about the problem that it is in Scripture. David takes Abigail as his wife. This is not some crowning uh, jewel of achievement here. David's married. And we can go through the cultural construct here of like, well, you know, she's now widowed and he needs to protect her. That's that's not what the writers will have you look at at this point. Because he doesn't just take her. He takes others. And this will come to haunt him down the road. This will be destruction for Israel down the road. Polygamy, should, I, should it need to be said on the pulpit, because I'm surprised at how many times it does, does need to be said, is not the Bible's design for marriage. For women or for men. It's not. This is not okay. This is not like, well, that was the culture back then. No, God is not pleased with this. So let me say that and be clear, especially for those women in here wondering, hey, what about that? It's not okay. And as I said at the beginning of this series, we're going to hold both of those things together as we look at David. The beauty and the brokenness. As we see him in, in these moments of, of wonder and, and, and glory, but then these, these moments of like, man, as the pastor friend of mine says about David, I don't, I don't think he would, I, he knows he wouldn't be able to become an elder in the PCA. <laughs> that should cause me to scratch my head here. He's right. 
So as we see God's faithfulness in this text for Israel and Abigail, we begin to see that though David is the restrainer in chapter 24 and not killing Saul, here David must be restrained. And from any human point of view, right, it's commendable, it's commendable, it's commendable, but it is not enough. You deserve better. A greater faithfulness will be required to assume the office of king eternal over God's people. One who never succumbs to folly or has fits of rage towards someone just because they bruised your ego. One who will always do the right thing at the right time in the right way and never need to be restrained. And that is Jesus. We love David. We like David. We love Jesus, right? That is Jesus. And because that's who he is, he alone is fit to be king over us. Jesus is God's ultimate act of faithfulness to us as one who, like Abigail, steps in to intervene for us on our behalf. Who, by his precious blood, what keeps us from going in the direction, the folly of our own hearts, and the sin that pours out of that would naturally take us. And how does Jesus do this? How does he intervene? Jesus becomes your substitute. Like Abigail, he steps in to intervene for us on our behalf, who by his precious blood keeps us from going in the direction that we would go in. But here in our substitute, he is the one that looks at God and says, what? On me alone be the guilt. That's the cross. As our substitute, though, it gets, it gets better. He is what also our propitiation, which is a $5 word, which means gift offering for the purpose of regaining favor for somebody. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, as our substitute, Jesus is the offering himself that allows us to what? Have favor again with God. And as that gift offering on the cross, Jesus takes what? The cost of our folly. So that we might have favor with God. People say, why can't God just forgive and forget? That's not justice. And you want justice, don't you? That punishment, that punishment has to go somewhere, and that's what propitiation is. He is the gift offering. This is how he intervenes, where Abigail gives 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep and all of the rest for something she didn't do to spare a fool. Jesus gives himself for something he didn't do to be our substitute in propitiation or gift offering so that sin the sin in us might be put on him that we might then regain favor with God. You want faithfulness this morning? Don't look to yourself. Don't look to David. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is the purpose of the wilderness. This is God's faithfulness to Israel and God's faithfulness to us. So when we come back to where I started, how do we stop? How do we, how, what, what causes you to stop? And I'm going to speak, I'll speak to Christians this morning. What causes you to repent, to turn? And I would suggest it's this exact same thing in this text that causes David. It's beauty. Beauty in the form of grace. Beauty in the form of Jesus Christ. To see him, to see what he has done for you and who he has made you, that's the beauty in grace that'll cause you to stop. It's the only thing that causes us to stop. And just a bit, bit a little more practical, I call this, we get, we get windows and mirrors in this text. Whenever we see the grace of God, it's windows and mirrors. Abigail is both a window and a mirror to us. Right? It's, she's a window and that through her, we see the heart of God. We see God's character. We see who he is. We see his unconditional love for us. And we heard it over and over that God has restrained you, right? That he has bound you up, right, in the care of the living. That's unconditional love. That's the window into God's own heart and character that we get. That's the grace. That's the beauty that causes us to stop. But it doesn't just stop there. We get the mirror as well. Where in grace we are seeing 
how God truly sees us. You see that? That's, that's what ha- that? that is what happens to David. He sees Abigail. He hears her. He sees the character of God. But in and through Abigail, he sees what God thinks and sees how he sees him. As what? You're a prince over Israel. You see how that works? And the same is true for you this morning. As you look at this table and as you see Jesus, you see both a window and a mirror a window into the heart and unconditional love of God for you, but a mirror in, in how you get to see how it is and what it is that God actually thinks of you this very minute because of his son, Jesus. And that is what changes you. That's what stops you. Friends, that is the only thing in this world powerful enough to cause you to stop and turn and move again towards the loving care of God himself, to be his people as he has called you to be. And where do you need those windows and mirrors more than any other place? Where do you need to be reminded? It's probably the wilderness. It's probably the places where you feel that God has abandoned you and left you. Look at the table. He has not. He has not. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for Abigail. We thank you for your divine intervention through her to David. Not just for Israel's care at this point in time in 1 Samuel 25, but that we might begin to see and understand more and more who Jesus truly is for us. And see your grace being more beautiful and believable than all the things that would bid for our heart's affection this day. That we would trust more in your unconditional love to us and we would learn to live out of the identity that you give us as your beloved. As we see ourselves the way that you see us only because of Jesus' blood. That would make us more and more your people this day. For your glory we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.